imagine yourself on a beach far away. Feel the wet sand under your feet, between your toes, as you look out to the waves, glinting in the sunlight. Do you smell the air? blows around you, and you stand there with your eyes closed, and you hear the waves crashing in. Can you feel the water wrap around your ankles and then recede? Feel again the moisture in the sand beneath your feet and how it stays there even when the wave is gone. Richard, I have a secret. You're not here. Hey folks, it's Eric. It's your best friend. Um, Richard is not with us for this podcast. He is uh, recording another podcast, um, which is titled World's Best Hair Podcast. No, he's not. He's actually, um, I think he's judging a festival during our recording time. So we just agreed that um, I might go it alone for this one for just a few minutes. And as I was thinking about what we could talk about, it is midweek after returning from the American Choral Directors Association convention. And I have been feeling a little down, actually, since I returned. And I was uh, scrolling through some social media, which I don't recommend really to anyone. <laughs> but um, I was doing that and randomly saw somebody post something where they asked, does anybody else have post-conference depression? And the more I thought about that later throughout the day and actually as I saw some of the, the comments that people had written, I, I thought maybe this is really a thing. I've felt this before, just down after a convention for a number of reasons. 
I thought it might be useful for us to sort of talk about a few of those reasons shortly. Not not a long podcast, but just to talk it out and to maybe come up with uh, something that may help. So I do think that this is a real issue um, and one that more people than I think I thought would I think more people deal with it to different degrees, but I think it might be a real issue. I had some other conversations with some people that were saying very similar types of things. Maybe it takes many forms, but it it is certainly a down after a thing like a convention. And even if you don't know what the American Choral Directors Association convention is, the national convention. Um, I'm certain that your own field, whatever that may be, has a similar thing where people come together from all over the country or, or in this case, all over the world and share the best or what is conceived of as the best, the best new intellectual ideas, the best, in this case, performances, um, it's really, as I'll say later, a mountaintop experience. So let's say you are um, struggling with some sort of down. I, think it's, I don't think we need to necessarily call it depression, but some sort of down um, crest in the wave. I guess it would be a trough, not a crest. Um so the simple one, one at the beginning would be, you didn't go. I think it's very obvious that you might feel down because you weren't there. Um, and actually, I bet you'd feel worse during the conference that you weren't there. But I think there were a couple people that said something to the effect that, oh, I wish I was there. And again, I think that really relates to scrolling through social media and seeing uh, a lot of pictures with people smiling, pictures of people with friends, pictures of choir, uh, pictures of, um, well, great food, uh, pictures of, and videos of people performing, pictures of people with who they think are charismatic leaders or celebrities or something like that in their field. And saying, wow, that could have been me. Um, That really could have been me there and I missed out. That is an obvious and easy reason to feel down. And there you are at home, um, not participating. I think a second reason, I guess all the reasons after this will be if you went. Reasons after coming home to feel down the next week. Another reason, I think, would be if you felt like while you were there, you made a mistake somehow, or you think you made a mistake somehow, and what would a mistake be? A mistake might be saying the wrong thing to a person that you came across, or say you had a meal with somebody and it didn't go really well. Um, That actually happened to me. While I was there, it was just not what I thought it would be when I entered into a mealtime with somebody. And I'm 
pretty certain as I think back, I, I said some wrong things to people along the way. You know, you're, you're talking to hundreds of people, thousands of people. Inevitably, you're going to not be perfect. You will say something that you'll regret or just it won't be slightly right. Or if you would have said this thing to one person and it means that something specific to them that it doesn't mean to the next person you talk to. So it's just very difficult to be on continually to say the right things. So maybe you think that you made a mistake or the reverse can be true where somebody said something to you that didn't feel quite right and it maybe still bothers you. Um, Again, nobody can be on continually. People will make a mistake. Maybe somebody didn't recognize you that they thought or you thought they would and you're hurt by that or they just gave you short shrift, which is another thing about mistakes is that maybe your schedules didn't line up with somebody and you just didn't get to see someone that you had planned on seeing or vice versa and you feel bad about that that uh, maybe you feel jilted or or let down because um, they weren't able to see you during the three days or the four days. Or um, you had planned on hanging out with somebody and they saw you for a bit and did that sort of look over your shoulder thing for the more important person to, to hang out with and I I think at these events that happens a lot. That happens a lot. And I can think that when you got on that plane and on the way home, when you review what happened to you on on this uh, conference trip that you took, that you could feel like, wow, I I wasn't that person that that X person could um, really love to hang out with or to really concentrate on when we were together. And again, I mean, maybe you did that to somebody else. I mean, there's that possibility. I'm certain that I did both. I'm positive that I did both. I mean, it's sad to say it is the truth about me. Um, And I continue to think about it, and I need to work on it continually, both directions, to not to not feel bad when people do it to me because of just the landscape of our profession, but also to make sure that I'm present with people. And it's a very difficult thing to do just constantly over a four-day span. And I guess another one would just be that you just simply didn't get to spend time with the person you wanted to. Just that simple. I mean, you just wanted to see someone and you didn't. And that certainly happened to me with a number of people. Um, there just isn't with in a conference that large, which is many thousands of people, um, with numbers of tracks that you could choose. And, oh, I'm going to go to this intercession and, and that concert. And then suddenly time it's nighttime and it's over. You, you miss the opportunity to see that person. So all these, I guess, could be not considered mistakes, but just things that happened over the course of the convention that might you might get on that airplane and 
or your car drive home and sort of regret to some degree and and now you're feeling bad which i think happens to all of us but i don't i think that's not really the the main reason i think we feel bad about or in the next week uh following a convention like that i i think the main reason that we feel bad uh the next week is a number of things but it all revolves around an idea that i probably would call the mountain top i just want you to imagine a mountain and imagine yourself climbing to the top if you've never climbed a mountain which is probably most of us some of us have but what happens on the mountain on top of the mountain it's so glorious for a number of reasons i think one is everything is cleaner everything is clearer the air is more rarefied up there on the mountain and the other thing that happens up there is that you can see farther which there's sort of a a metaphysical thing going on there where it just feels better to us i think to be able to see farther to see more land to see all the way you know 50 miles 100 miles or something both of those things i think are relevant when we when we talk about these conventions because when we hear performances that are quote the best or are representative of what we would call the best from our field i think they are cleaner the music is again more rarefied when we hear intercessions from some leading academics in the field i mean we are i think seeing farther so if you know what i mean that this conference gives us an opportunity to to climb a mountain to see farther to breathe clearer air to hear better music to to be introduced to things that when we're on the ground in our own worlds that we just don't participate in as much we can look at the mountain from the ground but when we're up on the mountain it's a different story altogether so we're exper- we're, we're we're being thrust into this environment what makes this environment better even better than that is that our friends are on the mountain with us and these friends that we have don't live in the same town they live in a town on the other side of the mountain so you don't get to see them except when they climb the mountain do you do you know what i mean you just never see them because you're working in your own town and it gets very lonely in your own town but then you decide to climb the mountain the same day and there you are together on the mountain experiencing what it's like to be on the mountain with friends that you've had over the years that know what the mountain means so to speak and so many of us got a chance to hang out with people that we love that we love dearly and only see once uh, a year once every 2 years and i and i know from talking to a few friends that you're trying to pack every amount of meaning into that time 
and it's hard to do. Um, I talked to um, Amy Blosser about this, one of my very best friends. This is what we do. We do not get a chance to see each other at the in, unless it's at events like this. And when you get a chance to do that, I mean, every minute over coffee is so packed with what well, we have to make get every everything into those few minutes. I think that we can because we know that after this is over, we have to go back down the mountain. We have to climb back down and go back to a real life where what is it like? I mean, if you have enough time, you could text or or call this person, but it's not the same. It's not the same as being in the same room with them, talking about things that you care a lot about, which is your profession. So ACDA provides just this very small window of time to get to spend with people of like minds that have different views than you, but you're all in this together, so to speak. And so when that time is over and you get on that airplane, you're essentially climbing down the mountain. And when you get home, you turn around and you see the mountain again. You're back to not seeing as far. You're back to not the air is, you know, not quite as clean. I guess what are we talking about here? We're talking about that I think it's possible that we get home and realize that, you know, we have to work. Our choir isn't maybe not up to par with what we heard. Or the job where you're working at is a place that has seven seven men total in the choir instead of a perfectly balanced collegiate ensemble that's singing, you know, the world's best music, your choir, my choir, all you know, the real choir back home is one with um you know, too many altos and half of them can't read music or something, you know. That's work. It's work that isn't the mountain anymore. And and you realize that your friends aren't around anymore. It's just you and this and the work, you and the choir that you're in front of. And I I just think that that's part of this down is that it's hard not to feel down after you experience the high, the elevation, when you can breathe differently up there. I mean, it's just clean. And it's and you see the smiles and friendships of all your friends and to come back down and it's work it's work even to see your friends because you have to reach out to them and hope that they reach out to you. I think I would share one more reason why we might be down. It's a bit uglier than that, even though I think that the mountain reason is the biggest reason I really do I think the fourth reason is possible for some of us maybe many of us even though we might not want to admit it I think the down also might be looking back at the time at the ACDA convention or whatever career you want to say your convention and realizing 
that you are jealous of all the people that performed or gave a talk and there's a sneaky thing in you that says I don't think I'm capable of that I don't think I'm that and I want to be but I don't know that I can be and then you look around at where you are and you're realizing oh I'm stuck here I'm doing this I'm doing this lesser thing I mean and I'll be honest I mean it these conventions set the bar really high when they're bringing in international choirs, when they're asking, um, you know, choirs that had just won the, the World Choir Games or something. And you go and you're hearing music that you will never, ever get to perform, potentially, just because of the context of where who you are and where you live or or what job you have. Or... You go to hear an intercession by somebody whose speciality is whatever, and they're wonderful at speaking with great ideas. They're highly respected in the field. And so we hear them, and we realize, wow, I'd really like to be like that. But the reality is we won't. And I, we keep forgetting that what we should be is ourself that we should be sort of our best self and instead we come home and fixate on the people that we wish we were which I mean is a classic envy jealousy thing but it's so hard not to do that when you respect what you've seen and heard over the course of four days. And you want to be a part of it. And you yourself want to be heard. You want to be seen you, as important. You want to be... Well, let's go back to that, that thing I was saying earlier. You want to be paid attention to. You don't want to be the person where somebody is always looking over your shoulder to find someone more important to talk to. And... It's, a, it's just a difficult situation and it's it's not great it's not a it's not a great thing but i think it is reality for some people and i'll i'll be honest it's it's quite often my reality sometimes which i'm sure to many of you might seem ridiculous but it is the truth that i often feel that way when i come home from these things is that i wish things for myself when I see other people, too. Um, I mean, I was definitely treated that way when people would come and talk and and you knew that they were trying to find somebody else rather than you. And certainly, I'm, I don't want to blow it out of proportion. For me, I feel very lucky to, to have or to be who I am and what I can contribute to our field. But I, I can understand very well the, the notion of wishing that what you did mattered more than it does even. And coming back home, you're coming back to a place of work 
real, you know, some, some of us in certain schools or in certain situations are doing real work. We're doing ditch digging, really, in a way. We have to really teach. We don't get the upper crust where everybody is great at sight reading and we can perform, you know, whatever is now and wonderful and, or, you know, whatever the hot stuff now is. Um, so I think that all of these things can lead to us feeling rough the next week, even though I do truly believe that the main reason is this idea of how much joy there can be had in this week, this week of hearing amazing things and celebrating that with people that you know and love and then coming back home knowing that the only the next opportunity well the next opportunity will be weeks not weeks i'm sorry <laughs> not weeks if it was that maybe it'd be different not weeks years away potentially depending upon the context potentially next year or two years from now that's a long time so what do we do? My choirs are know me, and some, a lot of my friends know me as a person that likes to use metaphors a lot, or similes, or you know, maybe even allegories a little bit. And they're often non sequitur, and they are never perfect. And it, sometimes it takes a while for a person to get it, even though in my own weird brain they work really well. And so I want to use one of those for you today in the hopes that you understand, I think, a possibility to help us get through um, and to help us continue, continue on. I want to bring us all the way back to the beginning and imagine yourself on a beach. Imagine yourself standing right on the edge of the beach where the water meets the sand. Imagine your feet and what it feels like to be standing right there on top of the wet sand. And just stay there as the wave crashes around your ankles you feel that cool, wonderful water, and then it recedes. Now I want you to imagine that that wave is the conference that you just experienced. It comes in like a wave. It feels really good. It cools you down on a hot day. It just feels wonderful to have it come around your feet. But the wave recedes, it must recede. And what you're left with is sand that is wet, or in my, I think a better word would be saturated with what? The water that just swam around your feet. So I want you to think about this possibility that 
instead of being like the sand that doesn't get hit by the wave, I want you to be the sand that's hit by the water. The goal would be to stay saturated as long as you can with the good stuff that you experienced. It's a it's hard to create a metaphor for the mountain when you have to come down. But when you stand on a beach and are hit with a wave, there still remains water in the sand when the wave is gone. Can you be that? Can When the winds of real life come around and try to dry you out, which is, I think, what's happening. It's happening to me, real life. It dries you out. Can you stay saturated with the joy, the sounds that you heard, the joy of the, the people that you hung around with? Can you stay saturated with the refreshing nature of what it was for as long as possible until next time, until the wave comes again and again and again? can be filled with whatever that convention was and bring it home with you and if you do you won't be thinking about yourself anymore we won't think about ourselves. we'll think about how can we carry forward something to other people yeah it might be hard where you are where I am it might be hard to think about the real work of teaching after you hear you know Westminster Choir or something whoever performed amazing at the convention and there were many but can you bring a piece of that the ideas can you bring the joy of your friendships back home to your real life I think it's possible to have that help and we can be a help to others because of it I wish you well, and I hope to see you again when the wave crashes around us all. This is Musica Obscura, your guide to off-the-map repertoire. Eric Satie, the self-described phenometrician who would influence dadists, surrealists, minimalists, absurdists, and countless avant-garde composers, made his first and only foray into the world of liturgical choral music in the early 1890s. 
Satie aligned himself with an occultist religious movement known as the Rose and Cross, or Rosicrucian Order. The Rosicrucians professed an esoteric blend of medieval Catholic, Gothic, and Egyptian elements, and Satie served as a sort of court composer for the order. After leaving the group in 1893, Satie founded his own church, the Metropolitan Church of the Art of Jesus the Conductor. He began wearing robes, named himself the priest, choir director, and the only member, and immediately set about writing religious tracts, condemning Anglicans and excommunicating people who didn't understand his music. It was for this church that Satie wrote the Messe des Pauvres, or the Mass of the Poor, for organ and two-part choir. The Mass itself is unusual and rarely performed, but it is well-loved among devotees of Satie. Of the Mass, Eric's brother, Conrad Satie, said, This Mass is music for the divine sacrifice, and there will be no part for the orchestras which, I'm sorry to say, find their way into most Masses. The Mass begins with the Kyrie, the only actual portion of the Latin Mass in the Messe de Pauvres. In the Kyrie, a long, meandering organ prelude gives way to alternating treble and bass singers on a melody inspired by plain song. The piece moves into a Dixit Dominus, known as the opening psalm of Vespers on major feasts and memorials, declaimed in unison by the chorus. The rest of the piece consists of a series of organ solos, an organ prayer, a Latin hymn, an ecclesiastical chant, a prayer for sailors in danger of death, and a prayer for the salvation of Satie's soul. The organ solos feature inscrutable instructions for the organist, who's asked to play, quote, very Christianly, and without pride, invisibly, or without a sense of being there. The work is 18 minutes long, and while it is composed of liturgical music, it doesn't seem to fit any actual sort of liturgical function, typical irony from Satie. The Mass was not published during Satie's life, but Darius Mio, executor of his estate, brought it to the public's attention in 1926. It received a few performances and has been praised by numerous composers, including Edgar Varese, who said, I've always admired Satie and above all the Kyrie of the Messe de Pauvre, which has always made me think of Dante's Inferno and strikes me as being a kind of pre-electronic music. American Virgil Thompson said, It does not invoke the history of music. Its inner life is as independent of you as a Siamese cat. It's been arranged by many noted composers over the years, including David Diamond. There's something haunting about this work, and in its use of themes derived from ecclesiastical chant, this strange little mass anticipates something of the Catholic musical renaissance of France in the early 20th century, sharing something in common with the music of French composers such as Maurice Duraflay and Francis Poulenc. Interested in performing it? It wouldn't be difficult to teach to your choir, and your organist would probably get into the groove after a few hundred repetitions of the same chord progressions. So, if you're feeling brave this Sunday and need to put together some music in a hurry, maybe you can announce to the folks at church that today's Mass is by Eric Satie. That's Music Obscura for today. We'll go on another hunt for great repertoire soon. Thank you.
And here is readings and writings for early March 2019. It is an excerpt of an article written by Arnold Schoenberg in 1912. He called it The Relationship to the Text, and it was published in Der Blauerreiter, which was a journal edited by Vasily Kandinsky and Franz Marc. A few years ago, I was deeply ashamed when I discovered in several Schubert songs well known to me that I had absolutely no idea what was going on in the poems on which they were based. But when I read the poems, it became clear to me that I had gained absolutely nothing for the understanding of the songs thereby, since the poems did not make it necessary for me to change my conception of the musical interpretation in the slightest degree. On the contrary, it appeared that without knowing the poem, I had grasped the content, the real content, perhaps even more profoundly than if I had clung to the surface of the mere thoughts expressed in words. For me, even more decisive than this experience was the fact that Inspired by the sound of the first words of the text, I had composed many of my songs straight through to the end without troubling myself in the slightest about the continuation of the poetic events without even grasping them in the ecstasy of composing. And then only days later I thought of looking back to see just what was the real poetic content of my song. It then turned out to my greatest astonishment that I had never done greater justice to a poem than when, guided by my first direct contact with the sound of the beginning, I divined everything that obviously had to follow this first sound with inevitability. Thence it became clear to me that the work of art is like every other complete organism. It is so homogeneous in its composition that in every little detail it reveals its truest inmost sense. When one cuts into any part of the human body, the same thing always comes out, blood. When one hears a verse of a poem, a measure of a composition, one is in a position to comprehend the whole. Even so, a word, a glance a gesture, the gait, even the color of the hair are sufficient to reveal the personality of a human being. So I had completely understood the Schubert songs, together with their poems from the music alone, and the poems of Stefan Georg from their sound alone, with a perfection that by analysis and synthesis could hardly have been attained, but certainly not surpassed. However, such impressions usually address themselves to the intellect later on and demand that it prepare them for general applicability, that it dissect and sort them, that it measure and test them, and resolve into details what we possess as a whole. And even artistic creation often goes this roundabout way before it arrives at the real conception. A short excerpt 
from an article composed by Arnold Schoenberg in 1912 called The Relationship to the Text. <laughs> 